Welcome to The Real News Network. I'm Paul Jay in Baltimore, and welcome to Reality Asserts Itself. Our guest is David Swanson, a man who's made his mission making an end to war. He now joins us in the studio in Baltimore. David's the author of many books, including War is a Lie, When the World Outlawed War, War No More. Swanson hosts the weekly syndicated radio show Talk Nation Radio. He ran Dennis Kucinich's 2004 presidential campaign. He blogs at davidswanson.org and warisacrime.org and works as a campaign coordinator for the online activist organization rootsaction.org. And he's Secretary of Peace for the Green Party Shadow Cabinet. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. So, as most of you know, usually, not always, but usually, we start our interviews with a bit of a personal backstory of a person, a little bit more of why they think what they think, and then we get to what they think. So, David, tell us a little bit about the household you grew up in, in terms of, was it a political household? Did you, you, you live and breathe war, peace, politics. Um, did you grow up in that kind of house? No, I didn't grow up in a military family or an anti-military family or a particularly activist uh, family. Uh, my parents uh, usually voted for liberal Democrats. I can remember them uh, supporting Jesse Jackson. Um, I, uh, I, I grew up in a very militarized area, as of course the entire nation is. Your American identity, it's all about pride and how powerful the United States is and bombs bursting in air and all that. I mean, that's supposed to be who you are. Well, that's Baltimore, the bombs bursting in air. The rest of us, you know, have to live through that at baseball well, go, games. Come but on, you go to school, you put, you put your hand, I pledge allegiance to the flag. Yeah, so I, if you weren't that, why not? Because I, from very young, if you told me to put my hand and pledge something, I would not put my hand and I would not pledge that thing. And to this day, I'm to a fault uh, doing the opposite of what someone instructs me to do. But, but also because I wasn't uh, raised in an environment where I was told about the glories of war and the, and the benefits of being powerful and, and so forth. I was raised like every child the world around to, be, to, to think that you should use words rather than fists, that violence is backward and barbaric, that you should talk with your friends, not, not punch them, not kick them. But, but the American culture and schooling is that's true on one-to-one -one relations, but when it comes to America's role in the world, you go off fighting for freedom in the American way. Right, but it's schizophrenic unless you've put that contradiction in the back of your head and learned to live with it. Which You're told not, not to kill. Have not most people done that? Many people to varying so I'm degrees. So why not you? Like, don't you go to school and get taught all this? I, not so much. Uh, I mean, to some extent, yes. And I look back even at history books that I had in elementary school, and they're horrible. They're awful. You know, this is, these are not the history books that I would want uh, my kids to have in their schools. Uh, but I, I did not grow up... Uh, celebrating war. Uh, I did not grow up thinking that it was good to kill people. Uh, and I, I didn't grow up convinced that uh, the Soviet Union was, was evil and we needed a military machine to push back against it. Um, I, you, you know, when, and when, when, when do you start to get that? How, how old are you? 
I'm trying well, to just I, get the era you grow up in. I, I was born in December of 69, and so I graduated high school in 87, and I'd say it was about 85 or 86 when uh, Oliver North's daughter, one of my classmates, brought her daddy to school, and he told us that Nicaragua was very close, and if our teachers weren't telling us how close the commies were and how scared we should be, they weren't doing their job. Uh, and, and I didn't rebel and protest. I didn't have any, I was interested in football games and cars, you know, but uh, when I did become politically active later, uh, after high school, uh, I became politically active uh, around progressive issues. And I've always thought of those as including peace and opposition to war. So I protested the first Gulf War. I protested the next uh, Iraq War. And what, what, what is it the first Gulf War that galvanizes you? Or, or if not, what? I, I think... Uh, you know, I, I ended up after I after I got a master's degree in philosophy, which you know that and a dollar can get you a bus ride. And I had to do something with my life. Finally, uh, I ended up working at Acorn and working on domestic issues. Uh, and then I left to go work for Congressman Kucinich on All right, his presidential well, well, campaign. Well, to go to Acorn and go to Kucinich, you're already fairly politicized and in a pretty but, left but, direction. So. But not around peace. I'm, I'm, the point I'm trying to get to is that it was with the Kucinich campaign that, we fo that, I, that my work focused on opposing war. Uh, and you know, if there had been recruiting posters for professional jobs as a peace activist uh, when I was a kid or a young adult, uh, I, I would have probably jumped at that. But I never heard of such a thing. Uh, you know, now I make money as an activist and an author, uh, working as a you know a full time peace activist, which most people have to do on the, on the side. Um, but I had no idea there was such a thing. Uh, and to a great extent, there isn't. You know, the jobs are in the military. Uh, but you're saying it's mostly cars and, did you say football? And, mm -hmm. yeah. so, when, the, so you're not very political through your teenage years. When, no. when, when do you start to be and why? Well, after high school, having not a clue what I wanted to do, I you went... You can't just go right to Acorn. You've got to have some <laughs> political social consciousness to want to work at Acorn and for them to want you. I assume everybody knows what Acorn is. Maybe not. So uh, why don't you give us a real fast two sentences on ACORN? ACORN so, was the Association of Community Organizations for Reform Now uh, that lasted from 1970 up until uh, a few years after I left it uh, when it was uh, destroyed by a Republican and Fox News stunt as punishment for registering poor people to vote. And it was a community organization that uh, low-income members in low-income neighborhoods that worked on local, state, national issues and, and was quite effective. Um, so, so for you to want to work at Acorn and for them to want you, you already have to be fairly socially conscious. So if you're, if you're what happens between sports and so cars between, and that? So in between high school and Acorn, uh, I go as an exchange student to live in Italy for a year through the Rotary Club, uh, which has a a long, long tradition of promoting peace and promoting cultural exchange. And I, and I see the world from outside the United States for a year, which is, is absolutely essential. Everyone has to do that. Uh, and I come back and study architecture, having seen architecture in Italy, and I, and I drop out and I never finish the degree because I'm reading philosophy and literature and politics and I'm, I'm reading books, which I never did when I was into the was sports and the cars. Is there specific you read that kind of opened your eyes or...? Uh, not one, not one book, but uh, but philosophy and and history, 
uh, and and then I end up in a master's program in philosophy at the University of Virginia, where they were nice enough to let me in, not having a bachelor's or anything. And I got involved in living wage campaign on campus. I got involved with uh, learning about the labor movement and, and various incidents and people I knew I learned about injustice in our criminal justice system in Virginia. Uh, and you know, I had always wanted to do something to make the world a better place. And wherever I had a job that, that didn't do that, uh, where I was you know, working at a newspaper in Virginia and, and being edited because I wasn't corporate enough or whatever, I, I didn't last long. Um, as well as whenever I've had a boss who told me what to do, I haven't lasted long. But uh, I, I had to have a job where I was working to better the world. And it was at Acorn where I finally got that. And, and why did you? Because again, if you, if you take up the American identity, at least normally as, 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 as it is expressed in most culture, you're supposed to talk about wanting to do good in the world, but in reality, you're supposed to pursue your career. Well, hypocrisy gets to me, you know, and I, I went to Washington, D.C. to work at a place called the Bureau of National Affairs, writing these newsletters for labor unions and for what we so disgustingly call human resource managers. Uh, and so when there would be a decision made by the National Labor Relations Board or various rulings and judgments or something to say to the labor movement, I would have to write a story and I would have to spin it two ways. I would have to spin it on what this means to the labor movement and humanity, and how can this help you screw your workers? And I had told them when I took the job that I wouldn't do that second part. And I had to, and I had to do it to be fair and objective and, and, and balanced. Uh, and that disgusted me, and I left. And I left without any prospects for employment, and I went and found that job at Acorn uh, because I wanted a job where they weren't going to tell me you have to rewrite it and spin it for people who are trying to screw their workers. You know, I, I'd had enough of that. Right. So Kucinich campaign is where you decide the opposition to war becomes your passion, your, your mission? Yeah, I mean, when I worked at Acorn, uh, it's not that we were pro-war. Uh, it's that we were working on living wage and predatory lending and other issues primarily. And I was going to the to the big anti-war marches during the build-up to uh, to the war in Iraq. And we had a big one that went right down 8th Street uh, southeast in Washington to the Navy Yard, right in front of the windows of, of the Acorn office, uh, as well as the huge one in New York and so forth. I was, I was anti-war, but I wasn't working on it day and night. Uh, and I didn't have a conception that there was a way I could. Uh, but when I worked on the Kucinich campaign, where I was the press secretary, actually, not the campaign manager, I, 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 we, we worked on health care and trade and war, and 90% war. I mean, this is what we talked about. We're going to end this war, and we're going to end war as an institution. The Iraq war, the war in Afghanistan, the, 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 current, the current war making of the United States, and the war preparations, the, 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 the expectation of the next war, as it's always so casually talked about in the US media, the next war, how are we preparing, what will it look like, as if it must be. Uh, we're going to end that. Uh, that. That was actually how we talked in the Kucinich campaign. So after Kucinich, you, you kind of go on your own, in a sense, you start writing. And, and the books you take up, have a, more or less the same theme, although I, I, although I should back up one step in your evolution before all these books, is that you're in on creating a website called After Downing Street and, and the Downing Street Memo. Mm -hmm. And this is obviously also a big part of the, your anti-war campaign. But what was that as a point in your life, and why did that become so important? 
This was in May of 2005, uh, and I had been working for better part of a year for the AFL-CIO, and I was now looking for what I could work on. And uh, a few friends uh, had an idea that we would work on trying to impeach George W. Bush. And I had actually proposed working on trying to end the war in Iraq. And, and the, these buddies of mine had said, no, 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 let's be realistic. Let's try to impeach the president. That's more achievable. And I said, okay, I'm not against it. So, and this- What year is this? May 1st, uh, 2005, uh, the, the Downing Street memo, this uh, official British record of a meeting that had taken place uh, at number 10 Downing Street, the prime minister's residence and office of his top cabinet, including his top intelligence officer, just back from a lengthy meeting with George Tenet at the CIA, reporting to Tony Blair and gang on what the U.S.'s actual unstated secret position is on Iraq, and that it is that they are going to have the war and they are going to lie to get it. Uh, and, and this was, you know, a lot of us knew this, many suspected this, but this was a sort of an authoritative official document, and it was huge news. Uh, in, in, the, in the United It was huge Kingdom. news everywhere except in the United States, uh, as tends to happen initially in the United Kingdom, but just spread. I mean, it was a big front page story around Europe and Asia and everywhere. Uh, and we wanted it in the U.S. media. Uh, and so we created this campaign, this populist campaign of mass emailing, phone calling, radio show calling, letter to the editor writing, protests, dramatizing, staging reenactments of the Downing Street meeting in the lobbies of media outlets, you know, until after weeks of this harassment, they started talking about it. And they, their first ever mentions of the thing were always of the famous Downing Street memo, which was not famous to their viewers. Uh, and there were lengthy editorials in the USA Today and the other big papers explaining why they were so late to cover it. And, they, you know, because it because they everybody knew they lied us into this war that's not news and at the same time and contradictorily uh, this this can't be real this guy just picked this up as at a cocktail party he didn't necessarily get it from George Tenet come on you know and, and so it, it, it then was forced into the media for a while and you had these these media analysts uh, pointing out that this was sort of a a Supreme Court overruling the media, that, that this was, people could force something into the media. Uh, but, it, but that pressure that made that happen came from the fact that the Democrats were in the minority and pretending to give a damn and talking as if they would actually try to end the wars and impeach the president if they were handed the majority, if John Conyers was made chair of the Judiciary Committee. And of course, that was a, a a pile of nonsense, and then once they got the majority, the, the war was escalated. Uh, and so as additional pieces of information came out over the months and years, many of them stronger than the Downing Street memo, they got progressively less attention to the point where we couldn't force them into the U.S. media anymore. And it was remarkable. I remember watching Sunday morning uh, talk shows on the main networks, and Cheney and, and, and gang would go on and keep repeating this phrase over and over again, which was, all our allies believe there were weapons as well. All the intelligence agencies believe there were weapons in Iraq yes. as well. And all someone had to do as a host say, well, what about the Downing Street memo? Which was a real thing. It wasn't like some marginal theory that someone had dreamed up. It was all over the British press. Right. And uh, 
They would never say it. None of those hosts on any of the shows would, would ever call them on this question. And you didn't even have to mention a piece of evidence. I mean, it was not disputed that most of the nations of the world said this is wrong. I mean, we had the Congress had to rename French fries Freedom Fries because the French at that point were much more anti-war than they seem to be in, in recent weeks. Uh, and uh, in fact, the, the nations of the world uh, were moved by the biggest popular demonstration in the history of the world on February 15th, 2003 to force the United Nations to reject the war. And if they were gonna have this war, it was going to be illegally. Uh, that was a significant accomplishment. Uh, and it, it helped build an anti-war culture that in fact grew under the radar to the point where earlier this year, 2013, the people of the United States said no to missiles into Syria and were heard. And you had in the summer of 2013, Congress members on both, both parties, both houses saying, this is the issue we've heard from more people than anything ever before in history, more passionately than ever before, and more one-sided than ever before. I mean, this outdid opposition to the, to the bank bailouts or anything. And they listened, and they were forced to say no. Raytheon's stock was through the roof, the missiles were ready to go, and they didn't go. Right. Uh, and that was built up over all that decade of educating people about the lies about wars. Mm. Okay, in the next segment of our interview with David, we're going to talk about his book, War No More. Please join us for the continuation of this series of Reality Asserts Itself on the Real News Network.